On 30th of September in the year 1938, the then British Prime Minister Sir Neville Chamberlain, returning from Germany, told a large gathering in front of 10 Downing Street of this report. My good friends, he said, this is the second time in our history that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street peace with honour. And then he continued, I believe it is peace for our time. And now I recommend you to go home and sleep quietly in your beds. But as we are all well aware, the history book will tell us that in less than a year later, England will be at war with Germany, heralding the start of World War II. Peace. This is what you and I, we desire. This is what we crave for. This is what we even pray for. But the irony remains is that it is we humans who wants peace, we are the one, we are the architect of the absence of peace. Wherever we go, we find that peace is conspicuously missing. Today in the world, we still hear of wars and chaos occurring all around the globe. In Myanmar, in Sudan, we have the tension in the Korean Peninsula, between China and Taiwan with the US, and of course that continual war over Ukraine by the Russian forces. We find that even back in home, there seemed to be no peace at all. We hear of family breaking up due to sibling rivalries. We read of couples seeking divorce from their marriage. And let me just say that the church, here in the church, where it's supposed to be the place where people can find peace, where those who enter our doors can find reconciliation and unity, is unfortunately a place of much division. We are divided over doctrines, over beliefs, over the way we worship in the songs that we use. And needless to say, this has led the church throughout the ages to split into numerous denominations. So we have asked the Anglicans, the Methodists, the independent churches. And you know, speaking of independent churches, did you know that today in Singapore, there are so many more of these smaller churches in existence. For instance, have you heard of the church called 316 Church? Sounds like our youth ministry, yeah, 516, <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's a church called 316. How about Yolin Church? <laughs> yes, Yolin, Y-E-O-L-I-N. I don't know, maybe the founder is a two-person with the surname Yo and Lin, and they put the name together and they form Yolin. A flame family center, the way church, and get this, there's one church who called themselves soakability. How is it that we have so many of these small independent churches springing out? Well, I leave you to your own discretion. But basically, you'll find that the church split is normally due to some misunderstanding or miscommunication. And we have this even in our midst here in All Saints. Basically, when someone in the church says something sensitive to us and we don't like, what do we do? We take the easy way out. We leave the church and we hate for somewhere else. Likewise, when we are misunderstood, 
by the intention of others, we leave the church, and there will be conflict, as our reading today will show. And so as we focus then on this final attribute of unity, we need to realize that one of the key components of this process towards unity is for us to be at peace with one another. And you find that this message of peace is a key essential message that is found in the Bible. You see, the Bible talks about peace in the midst of worry and anxiety. In telling, his, in telling his readers not to be anxious or worry, we find that the Apostle Paul writing in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is teaching that when you're worried, when your anxiety, rely on the peace of God to give you that peace. We find that the Bible also speaks of peace in the midst of conflict and dissension. God the Father seeks peace in reconciling you and I back into a relationship with Him. How? By offering Jesus His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, God didn't ignore the problem of sin, but He confronted it. And it is when we seek peace, when we have this peace with God, we ought to, in turn, seek peace with one another. And it's in this peace in the midst of conflict, which often derive from miscommunication and misunderstanding, that I want to touch on today. Thus, for this afternoon, we will reference the text that is found in Joshua 22, a section of the Bible that is not widely read or covered in sermons, but nevertheless has much to teach you and I about unity, about being at peace with one another when conflict arises. So with that, can I invite you to turn with me to Joshua 22? <clears throat> we're going to read different sections for different parts, and we're going to first read from verse 1 to verse 6. So Joshua 22, you have your Bibles, turn with me to verses 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 6. At the time, verse 1, at the time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and I have obeyed, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Verse 5, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your hearts and with all your soul. And so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. <clears throat> now, the context behind this chapter was soon after the conquest of the promised land by the Israelites. We know that by now, Joshua had already allocated the allotment of the land to the 12 tribes. And so they were now returning back home to their loved ones. 
And we find that this chapter opens with Joshua summoning the two and a half tribes consisting of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Now, these so-called eastern tribes had chosen for their inheritance not the land which God had promised them, but they had opted to remain in the land on the other side of the Jordan River, which is on the east. That's why we term them as the eastern tribe. And by doing so, they were merely separating themselves from the main group. And one thought would come to their mind is possibly this. Why were they doing this? Is it because the promised land was not good enough for them? Why did they want to do this? Why this show of act of this unity? You know, we can speculate all we want over the reason. But Numbers 32 verse 1 gives us the real reason for doing so. You read in Numbers 32 verse 1, the Word of God says, Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jeshiel and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place of livestock. So they chose the land not where God had wanted them to move to, but they chose the land the east of Jordan. Why? Because they saw that the place perhaps was green, was good for their livestock. Now, listen to this. The choice of land may have been excellent for rearing cattle, but note that nowhere in the verse does it state, nowhere in the Bible does it indicate that God approved of their decision. You see, their decision was made not on the basis of spiritual values, but purely based on material gains, based on what I can get out of it. You will also find that this decision also posed other major issues for them in the future. For one, by locating themselves east of the Jordan, you find that these tribes would now be extremely vulnerable to attacks from the surrounding nations like Moab and Amnon. Furthermore, you find that these nations, being heathen nations, the Jewish people would now be prone, they would now be succumbed to this ungodly influence, to the ungodly culture and religion, and ultimately it will lead them to idol worshipping. The Jews might also be tempted to marry this foreign woman as their wives, and in doing so, they would violate God's holy law from being a holy nation. But what's worse, what's worse is that in this separation, a misunderstanding arose that almost caused an internal war between those in the East and those in the West, as we will see later on. But back to the verse. Why did Joshua summon these two and a half tribes? Well, <coughs> the passage tells us Joshua did this for three reasons. Firstly, in verse 1 to 3, we are told that he summoned them to command them. You see, they had earlier made the promise that despite they have already claimed the land east of Jordan, they would now still assist their fellow brothers in the conquest of Canaan. And now that the assignment was completed, Joshua complimented them. He said this, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. 
You have obeyed my voice in all they have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. So the first reason why Joshua summoned them was to commend them for keeping their promise. But besides applauding them, Scriptures also tells us from verse 4 and 6 that Joshua also wanted to discharge them and also to bless them. He says, And now the Lord your God had given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies. So this means the army has now been disbanded and each individual could return to their entitlement and enjoy the fruits of their labor. But you know, no sooner when they returned home that we are told, looking from verse 10 onwards, that a conflict soon arrives in which Joshua had to admonish and to correct them. So let's pick up the story now as we look from verses 10 to verse 12. What happened here? Verse 10. And so when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, listen to this, they built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the site that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. You see, what happened here was this. Though the eastern tribe were happy to be back with their families after days of fighting, at the same time, it wasn't easy for them to say farewell to their comrades. And at the same time, now to not be close to the priesthood and to the tabernacle. You see, they were leaving behind the land that God had promised to give them and choose for themselves a place which they wanted. It's no wonder we find that they were beginning to feel kind of isolated from the rest of the tribe. And so what did they do? They resolved to solve this matter by building an altar of imposing size. Now, though the intention we see here was sincere, Nevertheless, the action was misunderstood. By building this altar of imposing sight, it gave the impression to their fellow Jews on the other side that they were rebelling and that they were now worshipping another god. And as the verse pointed out in verse 13, this almost led to a civil war. So yes, we humans, we seek peace, we crave for peace. We want peace, and yet we can see that miscommunication, misunderstanding can derail this good intention and create unnecessary conflict. And when unnecessary conflict arrive, how then can we achieve peace? Well, as quoted by former U.S. President Ronald Reagan, he says this, Peace is not the absence of conflict, it is the ability to handle conflict by peaceful means. And this first lesson that we can learn in order for us to be at peace is that with one another is not to jump to conclusion, 
but to make every effort to get the facts, to get the details correct. And this is exactly what happened in the next section. And so as we read from verses 15 to 20, we find that Phineas, the son of Eliza, the priest, together with ten other chiefs from each tribe, they went to reason with the two and a half tribes, assuming that they had turned away, they appealed for them not to rebel against God. Verse 17, they brought the example of Peor, and in verse 20, they brought the example of Achan and warned them of the consequence if they did so. And in their defense, the Eastern tribe presented their own argument from verses 21 to 29. The argument for building this imposing altar was simple. And the reason was this. They say that they were afraid that in time to come in the future, it is very possible that the children of, uh, the, the children of the people of Israel from the Western tribe would not recognize them as part of God's people and thus prevent them from worshiping Yahweh. That was their reason. And they have rightly said that the Jordan acted as a boundary be between them. And again, the irony here is this. Who was the one responsible for making the river a dividing line by choosing the land on the east of Jordan? It was the two and the half tribes. And so you see, this erection of the altar explained in verse 29 was not meant for any burnt offerings, it was not meant for any sacrifice, it was meant merely to serve as a witness between the two parties concern. So, the Western tribe went in, <coughs> talked to them, the Eastern tribe explained their reasoning, and so after both parties had presented their case, it appears that everyone was satisfied with the outcome, and though we can say that all ended well, we find that there is a deeper issue. Yes, Verse 32 to verse 34 tells us that everyone seems to be happy. Everyone seems to be at peace now with each other. But was the matter really settled? Was there really unity? Yes, Phineas and his delegate may have been pleased. The two and a half tribes may have been pleased. But was the Lord Please, was the Lord pleased with what they were doing? And in anything that we do, this should be our main consideration. You see, even though they may have claimed that they have settled the issue, they may have said that God wouldn't send judgment on them, that there would be no civil war breaking out. The fact remains that this was merely a superficial peace as Israel was still divided by the Jordan River. Now look with me to verse 19, because I believe verse 19 presents the root of the whole problem. Verse 19 says this, but now, the, this is the Western tribe telling the Eastern tribe, they say that by now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourself a possession from among us. Now listen, from this verse, and especially in the phrase, if the land of your possession is unclean, 
there's a strong hint here that those residing in Canaan were not pleased that the brothers who remained in the east, that they had not chosen the land God had promised to them to claim as their inheritance. And the problem here is that those in the Western tribe, though they hinted about this, they did not insist unconditionally for their brothers to come over and return. And the Eastern tribe themselves, we realize they themselves did not want to move, even though they were graciously offered a place. So on hindsight, we find that the people of Israel, they were really sweeping the real issue under the carpet by not dealing with it. And by doing so, they were having a happy agreement, thinking that all is fine, thinking that being at peace, God will be happy with this, with them. But listen, peace, this peace that they broke was at the expense of truth and purity. And the fact of the matter is that this is what all of us, we are guilty of, isn't it? We don't like confrontation. We don't like to point out the sin of others. Why? Because it makes us look like the bad guy. We don't like the confrontation of the truth. Why? Because we say that it can affect my relationship. As I mentioned, people will leave the church. We don't want that. So what do we do? When the problem arises, we try to make peace. And when we make peace, we are actually, in this sense, covering up the sin, and we're not properly addressing the issue. And when that happens, we find that the whole community still remains broken. The lesson for us here is this. When we want to achieve peace, this peace must not be achieved at any price. Because achieving peace at any price isn't God's intention for His people. As Warren Wiseby commented on this matter, he says this, that the peace that God's people achieve at the price of purity and truth is only a dangerous truth that eventually explodes into painful division. So if we want to achieve this peace with one another and we hide the truth, we hide purity, it is only a false sense of peace and it will not last. Yes, there's a place for loving reconciliation, but the Bible teaches us there's never a place for a safe compromise. If we as a church here is to be a, a place of plenty, then we ought to truly be a, a people at peace with one another. It is a peace that demands courage. It's a peace that demands a willingness to stand up for the truth in God's Word. So let us, therefore, as we strive after God's peace, we should follow what John 14, 21 tells us in the words of Jesus. Peace, I live with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. So be at peace with one another, but not at the expense of truth and purity. Let us pray. Father, indeed, you desire from each and every one of us that as your people who 
died for us, to redeem us, to bring us peace. You want us as your people to be people of peace as well. But we know, Lord, that as sinful beings, we, though we strive for peace, we are the one that's often caused the unpeace that's happening around us. We see it in the world, we see it in our family, we see it in the church. Lord, we pray that you will forgive us if we are guilty of all of this. And today, as we are reminded from your word, that peace is not just simply ignoring the real problem and just making a compromise. Peace is really dealing with the hard truth. Peace is really saying that, yeah, this is something that I need to change. Peace is something that we need to correct to admonish someone who has done wrong. Just as you, Lord, you have died on the cross to redeem us, to bring us peace. So, Father, help us to be bold in this area, not to hide behind the situation where we just want to come into a compromise, but truly to live as the disciples, to be obedient to your word, to really be at peace with one another. So help us as we continue to serve you, to love you. We pray that for your strength and your guidance to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray.